0: Again, man, I'm so glad you guys are here, and I'm excited this morning to be in uh, Mark Chapter 9. How is everyone? Good. Awesome. Great. Um, I hope everybody had a great weekend. It was a busy weekend in in sports, right, Uh, for all the Georgia fans that stayed up last night, and there were a few of you. um, Congratulations on on the big win. Um, If you don't know... Uh, Today will, from henceforth, be remembered as uh, the beginning of the road to redemption as the Falcons kick off this afternoon at 1 o'clock. The red and white stripes, along with the black checks, are not a coincidence. I'm sending a really strong message this morning, um, and it is, rise up, right? It's rise up. So, um, yes, what a great great weekend um, for us here as we begin preparing for... um, some inclement weather, right, over the next couple of days, and so we'll spend some time in prayer um, at the conclusion of our time together this morning, um, just uh, asking the Lord to be to be gracious um, over the next couple of days, um, as. We've all seen kind of what's going on in the weather, right, in this storm that's just leaving incredible amounts of chaos in its path. And so um, we remember those who are um, already processing through and cleaning up the after effects of – of uh of the hurricane so we'll spend some time in prayer at the end of our service today uh though for uh for that i also i recognize bill and i meant everything that i said and i also want to say thank you to all the ladies who helped serve on tuesday night here at bcm um from christ the king uh while i was teaching through john chapter uh two you ladies are incredible and I'm super grateful for all that you uh, all that you did, all the preparation that went into um, feeding the college guys on Tuesday night. Um, so know that, know that I'm grateful for you, and I appreciate I appreciate your work. So um, we are in Mark chapter nine. We're beginning Mark nine this morning. Um, and so if you have a Bible, you can open up there. You can turn it on. If you don't have a Bible, you don't have a phone. Uh, then we have Bibles in the front that you are welcome to. Those are our gift to you. Feel free to grab one of those and uh, take it home. Take it home with you. Um, But as we begin Mark 9 this morning, the the first verse is, um, I'll be honest, I meant to include the first verse um, at the tail end of our time together last week. And I didn't. And so this morning we're going to begin with Mark 9 verse 1, even though I wanted to include it in the tail end of chapter 8. Um, And we are going to go through the transfiguration of Jesus. This is a passage that is perhaps familiar to some of you. I think that there are some questions that upon first reading, um, one naturally comes to in light of what we see um, in these first uh, 13 verses. And so we're going to try to answer some of those uh, this morning, but I don't want us to get lost um, in the details. Okay, I want us to, uh, as we approach this passage this morning, to seek to understand what the main idea, the intent, the aim of uh, of Mark is as this uh, event, this glorious event, is uh, is recorded here for us um, in the center of. His gospel. And so, what's the aim of the transfiguration of Jesus? What do we desire to see in light of what we're going to read here this morning? Well, first, our desire, as it is every week, is to see Jesus, right? To, to see Christ. And this morning, especially explicitly, in light of what Jesus has to say through this most interesting encounter, to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. And the prophets. Okay, we see Christ this morning as the fulfillment of everything that has come prior. Everything that has been recorded, right? All that the prophets had to say, the true and ultimate intent of the law, all points us towards Jesus. And so our desire uh, in reading this this morning is to answer maybe a few questions that we might have, but ultimately to see Christ as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. To see his beauty, right? To see his beauty. Every week when we come together, our desire is that we might see the beauty of Jesus. I thought the songs that we sang this morning that Walt and Jacqueline chose to um, to, to lead our hearts into a posture of worship were wonderful, right? And that they set the stage for that, right they help us to to see the beauty of Christ and to understand the love of the Father displayed through the sacrifice of the son and we 're going to talk about some of those things this morning. We see in this passage this morning that the Son is revealed and delighted in by the Father we, we see Christ crucified and resurrected as the same Christ who reigns as the eternal King. And so our desire this morning in light of what we read here in these first 13 verses of Mark nine is to see Jesus as the fulfillment, to see his beauty, to see him as the eternal King who rules and reigns over all of creation. Right. And then in light of this to be encouraged towards obedience and the radical call of discipleship right as we come together again this morning and as we do each week we don't come with this all right here's what you ought to do in light of what we read here this morning it begins every week with observing the beauty of christ observing the love of the father as his wrath due sin is poured out upon the son at calvary right and that out of this Right? This realization of God's great love and this unfolding of his grand redemptive plan that we might seek to now, as a result, live in obedience to all that he calls his people toward. Right? Does this make sense? Are we together so far? And so you go, man, again this week, we're talking about the beauty of Jesus. Yeah, that's like point one every week, right? Point one every week, Christ is beautiful. Just write it down. Just record it, and we'll continue to unpack this thing. He is beautiful, and he encourages us and strengthens us and inspires and compels us towards lives of obedience, right? right? So that is where we are going to be this morning. So let us read the first 13 verses of Mark chapter 9. Uh, and then we're going to make a few observations and points. This is the word of the Lord, chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And so Jesus has just foretold his death and his resurrection, right, to his disciples. And now he, he, he provides this bit of insight at the very beginning of Mark chapter 9, the dialogue that we see in Mark chapter 8 as it relates to um, his, uh, his, uh, the kingdom of God coming with power, right? And so we're going to answer some questions about this verse as we, as we start in just a moment, but let's continue on towards and through the transfiguration. Verse 2, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. And led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before him, before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, huge shock, right? That Peter would be the one to to, to say something. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. I think that's really important. I think that that's really important. Verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had raised from the dead so they kept the matter to themselves questioning what this rising from the dead might mean there's still this 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 failure to see with complete clarity Right? We continue to go back to Christ's restoring the sight to the blind man just a few chapters or just a few weeks ago. Right? In which we see this, this two-step process in which he be, they begin to see clearly, but, but it's still a bit cloudy. Right, And, and then Christ brings about this ultimate, this ultimate healing and the clarity that results. The disciples here are still not fully grasping all that Jesus is saying to them. Verse 11. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Again, our understanding of the type of Messiah that Jesus is is informed by what we read in verse Twelve. We said it last week, right, that the, that the cross comes before the crown. And here we see Jesus yet again pointing back to uh, the suffering that he is to experience um, for, our, for our sins. Verse 13, but I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Hey, let's pray together. Lord, thank you again for your word. um, And we do pray that as we approach it this morning, we might do so with a posture of humility. Um, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see all that you would have to say um, to us that we might seek to, and in light of the understanding you provide, apply it appropriately um, in and through our lives, and that that through our lives and and through our application of this text this morning and and the full canon of your word, that you might glorify yourself, uh, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. So, let's begin this journey together. And let's begin this journey by observing Christ as the fulfillment of the law and the hope of a rebellious people. See the fulfillment and see the hope that Jesus brings about that is unpacked through the first eight verses. In this, okay, in all that we are about to discuss, I have a desire. Okay, I have a goal, and I want you guys to join me in this. I want us to see the benefits for the repentant through God's work for sinners and the newness of life that is now made available. See the benefits for God's people as God makes a way of redemption possible, something that might be realized by a sinful and rebellious people. Right, and see the newness of life that is now available through the sacrifice of Christ. Look at what we see in verse nine, uh, chapter nine, verse one. I think that there's some question uh, that we that we naturally come to as we read through this verse, chapter nine, verse one. And he, being Jesus, said to them, "Truly I say to you, there are some standing here." Will not taste death until they see, or uh, not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So, what do we see in verse 1? Well, in verse 1, we see a statement that has created a lot of conversation among people confused by what, upon first observation, seems to point towards Jesus' return before the death of the disciples. Alright, as we read through verse 1, this might be one way that we understand and interpret the text, but I don't think that this is a, a right interpretation of the passage, given that all of the disciples are now dead and Jesus has not yet returned. Right. And so I think that we can say, all right, well, I might have thought that this is what this passage means as I read it through the first time, but that obviously can't be true. And so what is this passage all about? What do we do with these verses? Well, I think a better interpretation of verse one would be to see it as Jesus beginning to prepare his inner circle. Right. The three among the 12 for what they would witness in verses 2 through 13. He's, He's setting the table, if you will, right, for what the disciples are going to observe six days later as Jesus takes with him Peter and James and John up this mountain where they will ultimately see his glory displayed through the transfiguration. So let's move on to the transfiguration and see what Jesus is pointing towards in verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. There's this, there's this inner circle, even among the disciples of Jesus, right? The ones that are, that are closer. And then, of course, you have the closest, right? John, the beloved disciple. There's an inner circle that Jesus is inviting into all that he's about to display for them in these few verses. He takes them up the mountain, By themselves, and it says there in verse 2 that he was transfigured before them. Continuing on in verse 3, And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. we see in verses 2 and 3, something happens to Jesus right? Something happens to him. His appearance changes. We're going to see in just a a few moments that the company, right, that has joined them is going to change a little bit. But what we see is Jesus displaying briefly for the three a glimpse of his glory, that which is eternally present With his people as the kingdom comes in all of its fullness. Okay, so as we read through, let's not only observe and take note of what we see here through the transfiguration of Jesus and all that the disciples, these three, were able to observe as God's glory through the Son is displayed, but let's consider what this means for our eternal future moving forward in Christ Jesus. Right, That what we see the disciples observing here is what God's people have to look forward to as the kingdom finally and fully comes to fruition. Right, We are living in a world in which God's kingdom is, is, is here and it's represented, but it does not come in its fullness. There is, however, a day in which the kingdom of God is coming fully and finally, that the earth will be recreated and absent of sin as it was designed to be, right? And that we will, at that time, dwell in the presence of the Lord, his glory and his majesty for all eternity. Here, we're getting a a glimpse at what that is to look like. Jesus displays for his friends his transformation. Another way that we might think about it is his transcendence. Right, that it might provide for them, there's purpose, there's intentionality in what Jesus is doing here. That it might provide them with encouragement and hope for what is coming. What do we know is coming? Right. What do we know is, is, is before us? Jesus is already, even now, he is set towards Jerusalem. He is on his way, he's going to the cross. Right. And the disciples will feel the effects of the seizure of Jesus of his trial and of his crucifixion, right? They will be terrified and they will be scared. They won't know what to do. Their entire world is thrown into upheaval. Not only that, but following the resurrection of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit coming to his followers, we see that the church experiences an incredible amount of persecution. If you don't believe me, Give a gander at the book of Acts, right? Like, work through the book of Acts and and see there the persecution that awaits those who who are following after Christ. And so so what is this all about? I mean, the transfiguration, it is is essential in this moment, but there's a a far-reaching implication that comes along with it. That the disciples might remember... What has taken place here as followers of Jesus living in a fallen world? This is a hope not only for the disciples here, the three on the mountain who witness firsthand the transfiguration of Jesus, but it provides hope for God's people here and now, right? As we observe through these verses here this morning the transfiguration of Christ, might we become hopeful as we live in. And despite our presence here in a fallen world, for a moment, for just a moment, Peter and James and John see the veil lifted. Right? They they see the veil lifted and they observe the full essence of Jesus. What does that mean? Well, it means that they are now in this moment able to observe his majesty and his glory in a way that they had not up until this point. That's why they are able to step back and go, wait a second, something is different, noticeably different. It's not like, wait a second, one of these things is not like the other, and there's a massive amount of confusion, right? It's that there is something radically different that's taking place here in this in this scene. And Jesus invites them into this. Right, he, he invites them into this. And in doing so, he points back to where he has come from. And, as we've already referenced, where he is taking them. What do I mean by that? Let me, let me quote from a commentator named Kent Hughes uh, when he said this. About this passage, about the transfiguration and what we see taking place here. He says, of Jesus, he slipped back into eternity, his existence before the incarnation to his pre-human glory. And in doing so, he provides a glance back and a look forward into his future Glory, And so there's a sense as we come to the transfiguration, we're in the moment, but we're also transported back while at the same time we take this massive look forward, right? And so we're all over the place. This is an event that literally uh, transcends time and space, right? Because it reaches from one end of the spectrum to the other. It beckons us back to uh, what Christ left, right, in perfect community and perfect relationship with the Father and the Spirit on into eternity past to come and dwell here, right, amongst a broken creation. the plight of the human condition, in order that a people might be rescued in accordance with his providential plan before the foundations of the world, that he might bring a people unto himself, that he might glorify himself, and that his people might receive the benefits sinners rescued from what we deserve. They see in this moment the beauty and the majesty of Jesus present. From eternity past and that which God's people have to gaze on into eternity future. A beauty that, let's be real, runs in stark contrast to the human experience. Right? A display of purity and a display of sinlessness. This is what we need to get from the transfiguration of Jesus here. We're not talking ultimately about externals, but we're talking about an internal condition that manifests itself outwardly. What does that mean? What are you talking about? Jesus is perfect. Right? He is without sin in all the ways that you and I have been corrupted. Christ is without sin. He has not succumbed to the same temptations that you and I often succumb to, that we struggle with, thus the human condition, but he has remained pure. He has remained holy. And here at the transfiguration, this is manifest physically outward that his disciples, these three, might observe, that they might gaze upon it, and that they might be in a particular time, in a particular place, in a particular space, be filled with the hope of this moment. Okay, this is one of those, hold on to this, remember this, remember this moment. And this moment is like nothing that they had ever seen before. We, we can glean a handful of things from other gospel writers' accounts of what we see going on in this moment. In Luke chapter 9, Luke describes the clothes of Jesus as dazzling white, not to be reproduced or manufactured by human hands. There is this separateness that takes place here, right, that that Christ is transcended before the people, he is dressed in a particular way, it is dazzling, and it is incapable of being reproduced by human hands. Verse 3 affirms this. No one on earth could bleach them like this. In Matthew's account, Matthew 17, verse 2, he says that the face of Jesus shone like the sun. And so there's this this physical transformation that Jesus undergoes upon the mountain here with his disciples. As it relates to Mark 9, there is a sense in which the encouragement is to remember Right to remember this display of Christ's glory. It's though Jesus is saying this see the hope of this moment. Right, see my transcendence, the affirmation of my fulfilment of the law. Right? And the one that uh, all of the prophets have pointed towards. Because the events of the near future, namely my arrest and death upon the cross, are going to shake you. And so, know who I am. Know who I am. And if we're saying at this point, this is amazing, this is incredible, you are absolutely right. And the thing is, as we continue through the passage, it only becomes more amazing, and it only becomes more incredible. Look with me at verse 4. So Jesus is transfigured, right, before before the people. And it says in verse 4, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And so what do we see going on here? Well, we see Jesus transfigured, and we see him engaging in dialogue we don't really see Jesus say anything in this passage and so we don't really see him communicating back and forth with them but we do see Mark recording their talking to Jesus and we see of these two right Moses the lawgiver of God and Elijah right God's prophet who stood before The prophets of Baal and called down fire from God consuming the altar. Both of these men, pillars of the Old Testament. And at the same time, both pointing towards the coming of a truer and better rescuer who would fulfill all that the law weakened by the flesh could not. This is Paul's message to uh, the Romans. Jesus speaks towards this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. There's this confusion concerning the person of Jesus um, throughout much of his earthly ministry, at least the middle to the tail end, right? From many people who are saying at this point that Jesus has come to abolish The law that he's come to do away with it. If we look at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, we see Jesus pointing there towards something that is affirmed here in Mark chapter 9. What does he say in the Sermon on the Mount to those who would say Jesus has come to abolish the law, just to do away with it, right? To push it to the side, The, the ceremonial acts of cleanliness, right? To do away with those things. He doesn't fast. There's a lot of confusion concerning prayer. What's going on here? Listen to what Jesus has to say. Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Right? And so if this is your interpretation of why I have come and what I have come to accomplish, then allow me uh, to, to correct you. I Don't think this. Don't believe this. While this might be what is saying, this might be the position that is, um, that is this presented by many concerning me and what I'm saying in my ministry, don't believe it. What does he come for then? Well, he tells us right there in, in Matthew chapter 5. He says, I've not come to abolish them, but what? To fulfill them. And I haven't come to abolish the law, but I have instead come to fulfill it. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so what we see Jesus speaking towards in Matthew chapter 5 is affirmed for us here in Mark chapter 9. As this conversation is taking place between Jesus and Moses And Elijah, representing the law and the prophets. Here we see Jesus in all of his glory on the mountain with Peter and James and John. And he's engaged in this conversation. And so, how do you respond to this? This is an incredible scene. Are we okay so far? This is an incredible scene. And so, how do you respond? Well, we get a glimpse in verse 5. Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi... It's really, really good that we are here. Right, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Now, there's, uh, there's a, a number of different interpretations of what Peter means as he, as he presents this potential scene before Jesus and Moses and Elijah and his buddies that are present with him. What is he he doing? Well, we can certainly say that there is a a failure to clearly understand yet again all that is going on and all that Jesus is working towards, where he is going and what this scene is actually teaching us, right? We can can definitely get on board with that. But, But in what way? Some people say that as Peter makes the suggestion that he is saying, hey, this is good. Right, which he does say. He says, this is good. Let's stay here. Like, this is what we're looking for. This is what we're desiring. Let's just stay here on this mountain, the three of us, Jesus, Moses, Elijah, and we'll just quite literally set up camp. And we'll hang out here. This is where we will be. Now, what has Jesus been teaching his disciples over the past few chapters? In Mark's gospel, well, he's been teaching them that the kingdom is to come and to be brought about ultimately through the suffering of the Son of Man, something he's going to reference later on, his suffering, right? And so while this is while you see this as, as good, this is not where we're going. This is not ultimately what I've come to accomplish. Us setting up tents on top of a mountain and hanging out is not the end in and of itself. It's not the end game, but there's something else That I'm working towards. And we've seen him reference it again and again as we've worked through this this gospel. We know that Christ is set set towards the cross. Peter is failing in this moment to grasp all that's going on here. He's he's failing to see Jesus as the figure greater than Moses and greater than Elijah. Hey, let's put three tens together. Man, are you serious? This is what you want to say. It's what I want to say as I'm reading through. Man, are you serious? That's insight into my own mind as I'm reading through the passage, right? Because what is it? Moses and Elijah, they are not on the same spectrum as Jesus, right? Like in Christ, we see one who is transcendent, one who is above. Everything points to him and toward him. And so, no, like we're not just going to dwell in tents together with these three guys, right? Like Christ is transcendent. He is above. Everything has pointed towards him. The Father clarifies this in verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me. This is incredible. And I want you to think about this. As you read through the Bible, if you've, had, if you've spent any amount of time reading through the Scriptures before, particularly the Old Testament, we know that most often, as there is this presence of the Lord that is displayed on the pages of Scripture... Right, this experience for God's people, real, with him, that his presence is made manifest through the presence of a cloud. Right? Think about the, the Israelites and their experience, the, the liberation and the exodus. Right? God's deliverance of his people out of bondage and slavery. As he brings them out, how does he lead them? Well, he leads them by a, a pillar of smoke during the day and a, and a pillar of fire at night. As the tabernacle is erected, and God's presence is there and real with his people. Right, We see this cloud that is present. We see the same thing in verse 7. Look at what we see. A cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. We see in other accounts of this same scene that the disciples are terrified by what they see and what they feel and what they experience in this moment. Why, woman? Because it is indeed a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God, right? They are taken aback, right? There's not this, um, you know, like... Like, Jesus is my homeboy moment, right, amongst the disciples and this voice that's coming out of the cloud. It's terrifying, and it it puts them upon their face. And we see, through this encounter, God revealing two amazing things through his affirmation of the Son. First, he says, I love my Son. How does he say that? Well, he says, this is my beloved Son. I love my Son, (laughs) The second thing that we notice is that the Father takes pleasure in the Son. How do we see that? Well, he says, with whom I am well pleased. Now, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, helps us to understand some of the things about the feeling of the Father for the Son that we see reflected in verses 5 through 8. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1 about Jesus. He says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And so the Father can take glory in the Son because in the Son we see this exact representation of the glory of the Father, right? We see God in flesh and the Father is pleased to gaze upon the sun. He goes on to say this, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is powerful. He is beautiful, and he is, he is powerful, continuing on. After making purification, for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, God, get this. Okay, let's get this for a moment. Let's just, if you're writing I now mean, just take a break and just lean in and get this for a moment. God finds ultimate pleasure in himself. Right, God finds ultimate pleasure in himself, a truth that informs and magnifies the way that we see the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. The Father is pleased with the Son. Right? He, he loves the Son in a most unique way. And at the same time, we know where we're going. Right? We know like, that the Son's face is set upon the cross, that He is committed. Right? He is committed to the work of the Father. He is committed to this plan of redemption. And so the father's love for the son informs our understanding of his sacrifice on the cross because it brings these two things together and it says, okay, yes, the father is is passionate for his glory and the father is glorified through the salvation of sinners and the sacrifice of the son upon the cross. Isn't this incredible? Right, the Father's affirming words spoken down upon the Son. And then, in not too many chapters, we are going to see the Father take pleasure in crushing the Son. Right, with laying on Him the iniquity of us all. With laying on Him right, all that we have, have brought upon ourselves through our rebellion, through our covenant breaking. And so what does it tell us about the cross, man? The cross is a God-glorifying scene. It's a God-glorifying scene. It magnifies the glory of God and his commitment to our salvation, the salvation of of rebels. Right? The salvation of of rebels. Continuing on in verse 9. They're coming down the mountain. They're coming down the mountain in verse 9, and we see Jesus charge them to tell no one what they had seen and if i'm not mistaken i believe that this is the last time that we see jesus provide this type of instruction because as he continues on towards the cross we know that, that he will give his life right that he will be buried and that he'll resurrect back to life and the hope of the gospel that christ is alive that our king lives And following his resurrection, the tone changes, right? The instruction changes. It's no longer don't go and don't tell, but it's now go and tell everyone, right? Matthew chapter 28. We'll see a glimpse of that in Mark as well. But he says to them, he charges them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the son of man had been raised from the dead. Verse 10. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Again, 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 right? A a failure to fully grasp all that Jesus is speaking towards as he talks of his own suffering, his own death, and his own resurrection. We saw it just last week. And yet we still see that there is still this confusion That exists, but I want us to, for just a moment, consider the similarities and the distinctions between the disciples' experience on the mountain and a very similar experience that we see recorded on the pages of the Old Testament of Moses. I want us to consider the the similarities and the differences between these two mountaintop moments if you will, right? In Exodus 33, verse 18, we see Moses on the mountain. And so Moses is on the mountain there with Jesus in Mark 9. He is again on the mountain with, uh, with God in Exodus chapter 33. And while on the mountain, Moses requests, bold request, to see the glory of God as he speaks with him. And amazingly enough, God grants his request, only it looks different than we might initially imagine that it would, right? Because God tells Moses, yeah, sure, I will show you my glory, I'll let you see me, but um, you can't see me full on, right? He, he says, but in order for this thing to happen, what I'm going to do is I'm going to place you in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to pass by, and I'm going to put my hand in- Behind you, right? And as I pass by I'll remove it, and you can turn around and you can see essentially my my back, the after effects of my of my passing. In chapter thirty four of Exodus, Moses makes his way down the mountain, and he does so with the law of the Lord in his hand and a veil on his face, because get this, his face is glowing. Right, he, he observed the passing by, the aftereffects of the glory of the Lord, and his face begins to glow, and he veils it. Not so much because, I, I believe, not so much because if he were to come down the mountain with a glowing face, that would really create quite a chaotic scene, although undoubtedly it would have. But but more so because Moses and the glory that is displayed in his face as a result of seeing the passing by of the glory of God is fading, right? That it would fade away, that it would go away. And so in order to prevent this, he, he veils his face, in Mark chapter 9, we see these three disciples observing the transcendent glory of Christ. And we see something incredible happen. Okay, in, in, in Exodus 33 and 34, we see that Moses is not even able to observe a full-on passing by of the glory of the Lord. But here, in Mark chapter 9, we see the disciples in the cloud of God's presence that Moses could not even look directly upon. And so why are they able to be there? This is important. Why are they able to be there? Well, they're able to be there in this position that Moses was incapable of occupying because they are with Jesus. Jesus is with them. Jesus is with them, and as a result, they are provided evidence of Christ's claim to be the Messiah. They're allowed this most unique and interesting and beautiful, uh, this beautiful scene to be a part of it as they rest in the cloud. And they see hope. Hope as a future reality of full intimacy with God is presented. And so we, we step back and we go, man, they're here. They are resting in the cloud. And, they, and that's incredible because they are able to be in the presence of the Lord. Why? Well, because Jesus is with them. And we go, man, I, I wish that I could have that. And here's what the gospel tells us. You guys ready for this? The gospel tells us that we can. Right. The gospel tells us that because of what Christ has done, because he has fulfilled the law, Because he is the fruition of all that the prophets pointed towards, that we can rest and know intimacy with God. Why? Well, not because of who we are, right? Not because of what we have done. We understand that as we get Christ being the fulfillment of the law, that we cannot fulfill the law. Thus, we cannot, in and of ourselves, enjoy intimacy with God. And yet, here we see that because of who Jesus is, And because of what Jesus would accomplish... That we can know intimacy with the Father, that we can know God, that he can be our Abba, that we are adopted into the family. And that's incredible. And so let us not look, let us not gaze upon all that the disciples experience in Mark 9 and go, man, I want to be there. Because the reality is that we now enjoy intimacy with God through the indwelling presence of his spirit now with us as a result of what Christ has done on our behalf. It's incredible. It's incredible. Right? I mean, it's mind-blowing. We are able to enjoy intimacy with God. And then they make their way down the mountain. Right? They make their way down the mountain. They do, how do you turn around and go back after that? But they make their way down, very similarly to what we see from Moses in Exodus chapter 34, only this time they don't do so with the law in hand, but they do so with the fulfillment of the law beside them. The one who makes all the intimacy that we have just talked about possible. We've got to go on. We've got to continue on. So let us close by by seeing this. Let us close by seeing the eternal king. See this Christ. He speaks toward and of his crucifixion and his resurrection. See this Christ crucified and resurrected as the same Christ who reigns as the eternal king. We have a king. We have a king who rules and reigns over over all of creation, and he does so eternally. And that king is Jesus. Look at what we see in verse 11. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come, first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things And be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased. As it is written of him. Has Elijah come? Well, Elijah in and of himself. We see him on the mountain here in Mark 9. With Jesus and Moses and the disciples. But has he personally come? No, but we see this Elijah type figure come through John the Baptist. And how was he greeted? And how was he treated? Well, he was Ultimately killed. He was beheaded by the counter-Christ, right? Herod, who represents all the kings of this world, right? Corrupt and, and broken and in, uh, and in need. And in need the same way that we are in, in need. An Elijah-like figure in John the Baptist comes to prepare the way for the coming of the Christ. And he is beheaded. The Jesus, this Jesus, right? The Christ, the Son of Man. would come and he would suffer as well. He would be treated with contempt. He would be hung on a cross. And the one uniquely loved by the Lord would willingly take upon himself all of the Father's wrath for sin. And then he would rise from the dead. And the Gospel says this. The Gospel says that we have a king who rules and then functions sovereignly over over time and space, and at the same time relates intimately with his people. And in doing so, he makes intimacy with God available by faith. So that the experience of the three on the mountain, in the presence of the glorious King and the Father, is something that we can know and look forward to. Listen to what Paul says here in his first letter to the Thessalonians. Beginning in chapter 4, verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, okay, what is the hope of God's people amidst persecution and difficulty and trial and struggle? And we all have struggles. What is the hope of God's people in the midst of these moments? Well, that we will be caught up together with them. In the clouds, in the presence of the Lord, to meet the Lord in the air so that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so what do the saints do as we gather together every Sunday morning? Man, we say this, right? That, that in spite of all that we see in the world around us, and, part of, and apart from all that we see uh, from the world within us, that we have a hope. That we have a hope in Christ, that we have a joy in Christ that supersedes the things of this world, right? That in the midst of all that comes along with the human experience, there is hope for an eternity with Christ. There is hope for an eternity with God, not because of what we do. Why? Well, because Christ is the fulfillment. He fulfills in all the ways that we fail. And so Christ is our boast, Christ is our joy and Christ is our hope. And so how do we respond in light of what we see here, man, knowing that this is something that God calls and invites his people into through the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross? Man, see and enjoy the beauty of Jesus. See and enjoy the beauty of Jesus. Of Jesus and the fellowship that he makes available with the Father. Be encouraged towards obedience and the radical call of discipleship in and through seasons of trial and doubt and difficulty. Remember the glory of Christ displayed both on the mountain and on the cross. And so, as we close our time together, let us. Let us consider responding in these particular ways. Let us just observe, right? Sometimes uh, we we read through passages and we go, man, here's a really clear application point as it relates to what we ought to do now as God's people. I think that this morning it's as simple as this. See Christ, right? Observe Christ, enjoy Christ. And we're going to have an opportunity to do that in just a few moments as we're going to, together, as a fellowship, a body of redeemed people, go to the table and remember not only what Christ has done for us, that makes approaching this table something that can be realized and experienced, but all that that means for the future. There's always a future element. And so let's enjoy fellowship with God and fellowship with His people through this time as we go with repentant and joyful hearts to the table. Sometimes I feel like we go to the table and we do so and there is this somberness. And there always should be this repentance from sin that leads us unto the table, recognizing all that God has done for us in Christ. But I want us to approach the table with joy, with joy, because we have been invited into this eternal fellowship through the sacrifice of Christ. And that informs the way that we go to the table. It has to. It has to inform the way we go to the table. Otherwise. We're just doing broken pieces of bread and some juice, right? It's got to inform the way that we go to the table. And so let's do that.